So uh, maybe you're like me. You have a hero. My hero is my granddaddy. Anybody got a granddaddy that's a hero? I mean, he was like just the, the awesomest guy. Loved my granddaddy. He was my mom's dad, and we lived, I, I probably mentioned this before, but if you don't remember, like our family, my mom's family, she was the youngest of six kids, and uh, her parents bought a piece of property in Leesburg, Florida, and kind of an orange grove on it, several acres, and on that piece of property, four of the six kids lived. One lived across town, and one had the audacity to marry a guy that worked for the government, so we prayed for her all the time, but nonetheless, <laughs> moved up to Tallahassee and all that sort of thing. Um, but four of us were right there, so we lived kind of down the hill from Granny and Granddaddy. Both my parents worked, and so Granny and Granddaddy were the ones that before school, we'd be at their house, they'd take us to the bus stop, we'd come back after school, stay at their house, just awesome. And Granddaddy, um, I mean, he was just really my hero. Not only did he have what I thought at the time was the coolest job ever, he owned a service station, and, and sometimes he would let us go. You know, that was like when you actually had to pump gas, and I thought I was big man when he took me to the service station with him and let me go out and pump people's gas. That was the best. Because usually he gave us candy when we were done. That's really what it was about. Um, just He taught me, I remember particularly, how to use his gravely mower. That was the, one of the coolest days of my life when he showed me how to run it with all the levers. And, and, and he gave me, for my trouble, a 50-cent piece. A, a half dollar. I thought I had arrived. I'm like, I don't have to work another day of my life. I can retire. It was done. Right? It was only that simple. But the best thing my granddaddy could do was on those Saturday mornings when one of his grandkids would get the call that Friday night, hey, I'm going fishing in the morning, want to come? Now, we lived in Leesburg, Lake County, grew up around the corner from Lake Harris, and so we'd get up early, about 5 o'clock, we had to be up there, granny'd have breakfast for us, we'd eat, we'd back the boat out, go around the corner, put it in at the launch, and, and oh, that was the best. We caught perch, speckled perch, and um, uh, what else did we catch? Bass was like, if you could catch a bass, you were somebody. Now, here's the weird thing. When I moved to the Keys, you guys, your bait is what we used to take home and eat, <laughs> where I'm from. Man, what, what are you using that for bait for? You can skin that bad boy, fry it in a pan. Actually, just scale it, right? But, but nothing better than fishing. Now, I thought today, maybe I'd just open the floor and see if anybody had a fish story they'd like to tell. And then I said, no. It's probably not a good idea because you're not supposed to lie in church, right? Because <laughs> I know some of you folks have caught one. It just keeps getting bigger with every talent, it seemed like, right? That's kind of how we do. But we love to fish in the Keys. Anybody here, I'm just curious, in the Keys and has never fished in our waters? Okay. Wow. And some of you are guests, some of you are residents. Okay. I'm impressed. Didn't expect that. Fishing down here is a big thing. We probably have some divers too, right? Yeah, a few divers that would like that. Have you ever done both at the same time? Uh-huh. Yeah, now we're getting somewhere, huh? Put the tank on and grab the spear gun, and now we're having some fun. Yeah. Fishing is great down here. I mean, it, there's a whole part of our economy that thrives on fishing. And fishing is, we, we understand it if you've been around it. And, and the best thing you can have, I've figured out in the Keys, is not a boat. It is a friend with a boat, Amen. right? That's the absolute best thing that you can find in the Keys. Now, all that to say, 
I want to talk about fishing today, but not the kind that I've been talking about for the last few minutes, because I find it interesting that Jesus used that picture of fishing to make a point to his disciples. We're going to look kind of as our our taking off point at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is going to pop up on the screen if you want to grab a Bible, if you brought one, or if you want to pick one that's on the shelves under you. Matthew chapter 4, and then we're going to spend most of our time today in Acts chapter 4. We've been for the last several weeks talking about this idea of why do we do that? You know, maybe you come to church and you wonder, why do they do the things they do? And, and church world is kind of its own world in some ways. There are some things we do that are very unique just to the experience of church, and there are some things we do that, that maybe are, are rather common. But, but we want to, over this course of weeks, talk about the kind of whys behind the things we do. We've talked about in the first week, why do we even come to church at all? And last week we talked about the two things that take up most of the time in any given church service. Why do we sing and why do we preach? So today we're going to kind of get to the answer to a question I alluded at last week, alluded to last week, but that'll be kind of toward the end of the service because that's when we do this. You may have wondered, if you've ever come particularly to a Baptist church service, why do we do an invitation? Why do we have, some places call it, an altar call? So that's our destination. You might not think it for the next 30 minutes, but that's where we're going. How's that? The preacher basically telling, you're not going to understand a thing I'm going to say and why I'm saying it for the next 30 minutes. It's a great way to start a sermon, yes? But I said we're going to start with fishing. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls his first disciples, and notice how this kind of comes about. In Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18, this is what the scriptures say. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his, aunt, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Next verse tells us what he said. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now I'm with you, I think he because he's Jesus and he's pretty smart that way, probably used that phrase, particularly because he was talking to fishermen. But he says to them, hey, listen, I'm going to make you something. If I were to ask people, if I were to go like man on the street interview and say, what are the things that you think Jesus would call people to make them? I don't know if this would be it. People might say, well, I think Jesus calls people to make them religious. A lot of people equate Jesus and religion and the, the trappings of, of church and, and, and the, the rituals of church. But that's not at all in mind in this passage of Scripture. That's not all what he said to these disciples. You might think Jesus came to make you moral. A lot of people really believe that about Jesus. They think Jesus' sole reason for coming was just to tell us we better do more good than we do bad. And if you do bad, God's going to get you for that. But that's not what he says at all. He says to these men that will be his disciples, that will form these core of people that will follow him for three years and will be the ones that carry what he did forward so that 2,000 years later we're still here talking about it. He says, I will make you fishers of men. The next verse tells us how would they respond to that. This is a remarkable thing. At once they left their nets and followed him. And so that begins the story. He says to them, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they do exactly what he calls them to do. So I want to show you the outcome of that. I want to fast forward to after the life of Jesus. 
after those three years he spent with those men, after that investment of time, after he had trained them to do the things that he trained them to do, after he had sort of fulfilled this promise that he would make them fishers of men and show you one place in Scripture what that looks like. It's going to be in Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to spend most of our time. Acts chapter 4, now this is insight, you just don't get it every church, but I want you to hear this closely. Acts chapter 4, its events immediately come after the events of Acts chapter 3. Okay, are we tracking? I don't want to lose anybody. You got to know that. Acts chapter 3 tells the story when Peter and John are going to the temple. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, after all the events of the gospel, he's ascended into heaven. They're left to do it after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They're going to the temple. On their way, they see a a man on the, the road there. He was a beggar. He was lame from birth. And he's calling out, asking for money. And Peter and John stop. And scripture says, particularly in Acts chapter 3, they look at him. Make eye contact with him. And actually, I think one of them says, look at me. And he looks at him. Now, he must have been pretty excited, right? If you're a beggar and somebody makes eye contact, that's a good thing. Because I will guarantee you in this room, you have been in your car and you have stopped at an intersection where there's a guy with a will work for food sign and you've done your dead level best not to make eye contact. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Am I right? You don't want to make eye contact because you're scared if you make eye contact, he's coming to your window. Right? Am I right? Am I right, right? Am I right or am I right? Okay. That's how it works. You know it. Well, this man, a beggar, lame, they make eye contact. He's thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And what, is it, what do they say to him? We don't have no money. That's not how they say it. They say it much more poetically. Silver and gold have I none. That just means we ain't got no money. And because we ain't got no money, we ain't giving you no money. But what we have, we give you. And he probably thought, great, more advice. Because everybody wants advice, right? Don't you love it when somebody gives you unsolicited advice? That's what I thought, yeah. Nobody wants that. Well, he, what we have, we give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what did he do? He rose up and walked. And, and as the song goes, do you remember the song? He went jumping and leaping and praising God. Anyone else? Okay, like four people, that's something. It's a song, right? They go jumping and leaping. And pray. That's, that's actually biblical, right in there. A few verses later, that's what he does. And, and gets people all a tizzy at the temple. Peter and John done caused a ruckus. And so what they're going to do now, as happened early on in the disciples' ministry, is they are going to arrest Peter and John for causing this commotion. Put them in jail. Bring them before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and all those sorts of things. Now, in verse 18 of Acts chapter 4, it's kind of, we see the outcome of this. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. They called them in again. So they've already talked to Peter and John once. They've already had kind of a, a bit of a trial with them. This is later. We'll go back and see the first time in a few minutes. But they come and call them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I find that fascinating. Really, here's why. Because we live, even in a world today, 2,000 years later, where you can talk about a lot of things. But the minute you get specific about Jesus, people start to react. Right? Talk about God all day. This kind of generic belief and faith and just we all believe in God. But when you put Jesus in the conversation, when you say, well, 
I believe in Jesus, suddenly the atmosphere changes, doesn't it? People would rather us not. It's not politically correct to bring specifically Jesus into the conversation. Talk about God, yes. Talk about religion, yes. Raise your kids that way, whatever. Just don't tell us about it. And it's not a new thing because that's what these, ironically, religious leaders are telling the disciples. You can do whatever you want except talk in the name of Jesus. Now, these are people that share a same background with them. Peter and John are Jewish. They'd been raised in the Jewish faith. They had been uh, exposed to all of those teachings, had been to the temple, had participated in the religious rituals. There's not but a little bit of difference between the religious leaders and Peter and John at this point in time. But they say in verse 18, don't talk about it anymore. But Peter and John replied, verse 19, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And then verse 20 is the one that that really jumps out at me. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's a remarkable phrase. I don't want you to miss that. Notice they don't say, We cannot help speaking about what we believe. We cannot help speaking about our doctrine, about our creed, about our faith. No, they say the reason we're not going to stop talking is because we have seen something with our own eyes and we have heard it with our own ears and we can't help but talk about it. That must have been something pretty remarkable, yes? Maybe you're wondering today, what did they see in here? Oh, you're like, look, preacher, we're in church. We know what it is. Pretend. Humor me. Are you curious what they had seen and heard? Okay, good. Otherwise, we're going to get out early, and nobody wants to do that. Okay, that was a close one. Back up to the first time these religious leaders call them in. We're going to back up to verse 5. Same chapter, same chapter, Acts chapter 4, verse 5. Notice what happens here. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And then it actually lists who's in the room. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. Now, those names might not mean a lot to us. Annas and high priest we get, and Caiaphas shows up in the Bible. But John, Alexander, who are they? I don't know, but when Luke wrote Acts, Those must have been names that had some weight in that time to say, hey, listen, this wasn't some low-level meeting. This was like a big deal. Because when you have a meeting, you've gotten in trouble at the temple, and they call in the high priest, and Caiaphas, the former high priest, and some of the high priest's family, they're taking this pretty doggone seriously. Whatever has happened has got their attention in a huge way. Verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them, And began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? This, by the way, is the heal the the lame man that was at the gate on the way into the temple. That story we started with. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Uh Uh-oh. 
Now we know why a few verses later they say, look, talk about all you want, but don't bring up that Jesus fellow anymore. Because he kind of gets in their business, doesn't he? Can, can you sense the tension in the room? Why did you do this? How did you do this? By what power or by what name? Well, Vita said just Jesus, that's one thing. But he goes the next step and he says, Jesus, I wonder if he pointed, whom you crucified. I mean, kind of confrontational, a little antagonistic. And oh, by the way, you crucified him, not years ago, not decades ago, just a few weeks ago, in the city we're in right now, just outside the city we're in right now. Peter's not making this declaration way far removed from the events. He's talking to the people that had a direct hand in the process of making sure Jesus was crucified. They finagled and they worked the system. They did everything they could possibly do. Tells us they hired witnesses thinking that would do it. That kind of didn't work out until Jesus kind of incriminated himself by claiming to be God. And they tore their robes and they go before the Roman leaders because the Jewish people had no authority to crucify, to, to execute capital punishment. They were under the Roman authority. And so they had to appeal to them. And as you know, in that process, it wasn't just a slam dunk. Oh, sure, we'll crucify him. No, they go through this process of trial and everything. And, and finally, Pilate has this great idea. Rather than crucify what seems like a pretty innocent fellow to me, we have a tradition at the Passover. We release one criminal to you. So do you want sweet, innocent Jesus of Nazareth or ugly, cursing, mean, criminal Barabbas? And what do they say? We'll take Barabbas. And so they release Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him. And he washes his hands symbolically, even though he was the only one as a Roman to have the authority to execute that sentence of judgment. He showed he didn't necessarily think that was the right way to do. Had him beaten within just an inch of his life, as the phrase goes. His soldiers put the crown of thorns, mocked Jesus, paraded him through the streets carrying his cross, hung him, nailed him to that cross, hung him on a hill for all to see. And Peter, in that moment, in their faces, in the faces of the very people who executed that judgment, who finagled the system to make it happen, says, whom you crucified, that guy, and not only whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now we're getting somewhere. Again, not years ago, not decades ago, not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, a few weeks ago, in this city, you executed the judgment, you had the Romans put the guard in front of the tomb, and you know, as well as we do, that on the third day, on Easter Sunday, the tomb, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And if you want to refute me, just take me down the road and show me the tomb. Right? All that, in that day and time, that's really all you had to do to shut the disciples up, you would think. Show them the proof that they were wrong. No, he's still dead. Right in there, right where we put him. But they couldn't do that because he wasn't dead. He was alive. And Peter says to them, we can't help but testify to what we have seen and what we have heard. And he, as if he hasn't kind of stuck it to him enough, notice what he does in the next verse here. He says in verse, verse 11, is by the name, verse 10, is by the name of Jesus Christ, whom be crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healed. He is, Jesus is, 
the stone you builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. The stone you rejected. Now that is a quote, you probably have a footnote in your Bible, from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. Which means if you were a good Jew, as you were raised, as you were taught the Bible, as you used psalms in your worship, you were told that there are places in the Old Testament, as we call it, places in the Hebrew Bible, as they would consider it, places in their Bible, that it says one day, Though we are oppressed by Rome, and though in our history we've been oppressed, we've been in exile, we've had all these problems, God has promised He will send a deliverer, an anointed one, a Messiah, who will come and fight on our behalf, and we will be liberated from this oppression. Psalm 118 talks about the Messiah. And it says in particular in that passage that the Messiah would be the stone the builders rejected and become the chief cornerstone. And I would wonder if sometime in history, as a Jewish person, as you were maybe in your class learning Psalm 118 and they were telling you what it meant and they were explaining to you this Messiah and the hope that they had as Israel, that you would read this passage and go, well, who would be stupid enough to reject Messiah? If the Messiah came, surely we wouldn't reject him Surely we would see him and celebrate him and follow him. Maybe some of these men as priests in their careers had stood in front of classes of young young people and told them to be aware and to be on the lookout for the Messiah because one day he will come. And they are the ones, Peter says, the stone you builders. Not only did you crucify him, but you have rejected the one whom God has sent. As Messiah, but God, by raising him from the dead, has made him the chief cornerstone, the capstone of this whole new thing that he has done, this whole thing that he has promised. The the linchpin of it, the key part of it is in Jesus. And then verse 12, notice what he says. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Now, that's a departure. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to people whose business was kind of in the salvation game, right? They had lived their lives trying to administer the revelation of God that brought in their mind salvation to the people. But the one difference that Peter introduces to the equation because of what God had done in history by Jesus is salvation isn't based on a what. It's based on a who. Because a lot of people think salvation is all about the what. For the people of Israel, salvation was about the what of the religious system, of the sacrificial system. If you were a good Jewish person who wanted to make God happy, This is how you did it. These were the things you did. You had to live a certain way. You had to offer the proper sacrifices. You had to go through the right high holy days and offer those sacrifices as prescribed. It's a what? And even today, that's not such an unusual thing. If we were to talk about how people look at religion or faith or salvation, most people think salvation is the great big measuring scale in the sky. Meaning, At some point, God is stacking up all the good stuff you did. Anybody done anything good this week? It's okay, you can say yes. You're in church. Yes? On this side. And on this side of the scale, he's stacking up all the bad stuff you did. Anybody here sin this week besides me? I have, just for the record. 
have more than once. And, and a lot of people look at salvation as when, when you put the good on that side of the scale and the bad on this side of the scale, as long as the good outweighs the bad, you're fine. Because there are much worse people in the world than you. Can I get an amen? Of course there are. Just look at how good. I'm in church today. I must be a good person. And there are whole systems of religion. In fact, most systems of religion somehow hinge on that idea. That it's about the what you do. It's about doing the right thing. It's about performing in a certain way. It's about praying a certain way. It's about giving. It's about all of these good deeds that we do. Somehow, God really finds those the most important thing. And Peter says, salvation is not found in a what. Salvation is found in a who. And not just any who, but a particular specific who. The who in question is Jesus Christ himself. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, verse 13, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The boldness that they exercised in a very confrontational, antagonistic situation, they noted it. The courage they had in the headquarters of the Jewish religion to carry on the way they did, to, in effect, defy the very tenets of Judaism. They noticed it. And what did it kind of boil down to? It wasn't that they were the smartest people in the room. They were unschooled, ordinary men. They were, how did we start in Matthew chapter 4? They were fishermen. They were working folk. They hadn't been to theology school. They hadn't done all the things that, that we might think that these Pharisees had been through. In fact, in the process, we've talked about this in other contexts, in the process of becoming a religious leader, it was sort of, you had to rise to the top of your class two and three times before you could finally be kind of selected to be a religious leader. They weren't that. They were not the smartest. They couldn't answer all the questions. If they were given a moment before the high priest and the the other leaders there, and it was all about a a Bible quiz show, an Old Testament, who knows the most, they would have lost. But that wasn't why they were there. They were there because of something they had seen and something they had heard of a person they had spent three years with and who they were convinced was the promised Messiah of God. And because of his death and resurrection, he was the only way, the only means of salvation. And so they could not be silent. They would not be silent about Jesus. Now now that makes sense in a lot of ways because, and, and here's kind of step one, that was the introduction. The rest is short, I promise. The, the disciples, the early apostles, as they went and they preached and they taught, they were unashamed to point people to Jesus. They were bold, even as we see here, in the face of persecution, in the face of being thrown in jail, 
even in the face of losing their life, in the first face of martyrdom, all of them martyred except for John, who's exiled for his faith in Christ Jesus. Not because of what they believed. Not because they could answer every question everybody had about religion and faith. Not because of a doctrinal statement. Not because of any sort of list of beliefs that that were non-negotiable. They lived and died that way because of something that happened in history. Jesus was crucified, laid in a tomb, and three days later, he was alive. And that changed everything. And here's here's the thing we have to guard against is in church world. We are a, maybe it's because of, you know, modern day America, maybe it's because of our educational system. Often in church world, that's what I call this little place we hang out in a few times a week. Um, Often in church world, we, we put a priority on knowledge of, you know, Bible study, good thing. We had 48 people on Thursday in Bible study between the morning and the evening groups. That's awesome. That's remarkable. Those are good things. But, and, and this was my thing growing up, just knowing the answers isn't enough. Because, there is always somebody that's a little bit smarter than you. And we live in a world that values smarts and that values logic and talks about philosophy. And philosophically, if you or I were to get into a discussion, dare I say an argument about religion or faith or Christianity with some that we might run into, we would lose. If we're talking about the, you know, the nuances of things. But here's what nobody can take from you or I. What we have seen and what we have heard. My faith is based upon something that happened in history. Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. He was alive. And we can argue nuance. We can argue theology. We can talk about all those things with those who don't believe. But it's hard to get over that hurdle. You know, that's why every Easter on the cover of all the magazines. You remember magazines? They used to be at the grocery store. You'd see them. Do they even have them anymore? Time, Newsweek, there would be those Jesus covers. On the History Channel, usually around that same time of year, there's those specials. We've Uncovering the tomb of Jesus. Have we found the tomb? Why are they trying to find the tomb of Jesus? Because if they would find the tomb of Jesus, we'd have to shut up and go away. Guess what? They haven't found it yet. He's not in there. They're not going to find it. It's a good thing, right? And so here's here's what we can kind of hang out on. Because our faith is based on something that happened in history, we have to tell people that. How did you learn history? You probably went to school, and you went to a class, and they gave you a book, or in college, you have to go buy it for way more than it's worth. If you're lucky, you can rent them now, which is a remarkable thing. And oh, I won't go there in case the school is listening. Anyway, <laughs> you buy the book, you have a professor, you have a teacher, you read the book, you have quizzes, you learn the names, you learn the facts. Now, how can you not learn history? If you were just to say, I want to learn history, I'm going to go 
and sit under a tree and contemplate history. Think about that. Just going to, in my mind, conjure up all the details of history. How successful would you be? Probably not very, right? I mean, if you were to think of some things, you might come to some conclusions like, I bet there were wars in history because I see the conflict that exists around me between people, whether it's individually or, or you know, in our country, different political spectrums, whether it's in our world, this group and that group, this uh, faction and that faction, this ethnicity against this ethnicity. So you might speculate that there were wars in history based on the nature of humanity, but you couldn't come up with off the top of your head without somebody telling you about them, the names of those wars and the key players in those wars and the places those wars were fought and the generals that led those wars and the outcome of those wars and how that shaped the next part of history because of those wars, right? We don't just come up with that. We're taught that. Does that make sense? Good. So here's my point. Same thing with faith in Jesus. Why did Peter and John and the other disciples go out and tell people about Jesus, about what they had seen and heard? Because the only way people learn history is if they hear it from the historian. They hear it from the people who saw it happen, who were there, who recorded it. And so here's the great thing about our faith. It's not some philosophical construct. It's not a list of beliefs. It is something that actually happened in history. Jesus lived and died and rose again. I thought you'd get more excited about that. And we can tell people that. And they can say, well, what about this? And you know what you can do? You can say, yeah, but he was dead and now he's alive. What do you do with that? I can't get past that. I mean, I don't understand that argument you're making. I don't really have a good answer to the presence of the question of evil in the world. Why, is, why did bad things happen to good people? I don't know. But I know Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. What about that? I can't get past that. What do you do with that? Peter and John said, we're here. We're willing to go to prison even again and again and again because we won't stop talking about what happened that we saw and heard, and you have to acknowledge you were a part of the whole proceedings yourself. Which brings us to the point of the message. Why, at the end of our service, do we have what we call an invitation? Or maybe some people call it an altar call. That's kind of the old school idea of it. Now, church, I guess Baptist churches probably call it invitation because as we construct our Churches, um, we don't have what's considered an altar at the front. Many different varieties of churches, denominations, have a part of a piece of furniture, something that's called an altar. We don't really have that. We, have a, we call this a communion table, not really an altar. So altar call in Baptist churches doesn't really fit. The altar is thought to be the front of the church. Um, the altar, symbolic of the Old Testament temple where the altar was outside the Holy of Holies. And the, the priests did the things that they did making the sacrifices. So, so we kind of equate this area, the front of the church, right in front of the, the pulpit or the, the rostrum or dais or what else do you call this thing? Stage? I don't know. People call it a lot of things. We call this the altar. Why do we have an invitation or an altar call? 
because, oh, here's, okay, let me go with the, the negative first. You ready for the negative? This is the hard part. I can't give you chapter and verse like the Bible says, and thou shalt have an altar call at the end of thine services. Not there. Not there. But how did Jesus approach Peter and Andrew, the fishermen? Remember Matthew chapter 4? What did he say? Come, follow me. Might we consider that, oh, I don't know, what would you call it? I, an invitation? Perhaps, perchance? That expected a response? So we believe, and churches like us and churches of all sorts and kinds believe that as we proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, that we should offer a chance to respond to that. Now, we could talk for weeks about the abuses that have happened and maybe even still happen in the name of altar calls because it is a time, we, let's be honest, that might be open for emotional manipulation. There are those who are charismatic enough that in those arenas and at that point of time could use music and their voice and, and just good old-fashioned guilt. Yeah? To, con- to, to kind of elicit a response from people. And that happens and happened in history. But that's not the point of an altar call. That's not why we do an invitation. We record as, as a church on our profile to our convention the decisions that were made. And I've m- made many observations in history about how you kind of get pegged, how successful you are based upon how many decisions you get to report. And it would be tempting to think, oh, I could give a really emotional appeal and elicit a response so I could add more numbers to that report so that I'll look better and maybe, I don't know, what would that get me? Got nothing. Probably nothing. But we don't want to peddle it in that way. In fact, I would say we don't want to cheapen it in that way because we believe the, uh, the invitation time isn't the invitation of the pastor, isn't the invitation even of the church, it is the invitation of Jesus, the same one he offered to his disciples, come, follow me. And what did the disciples do? Remember Matthew 4, 20? Immediately, they dropped their nets and followed him. Sometimes, immediately, because people hear the gospel, they say, nothing else matters, I want that. And so in this arena, sometimes in a church service, we offer the appeal of the gospel and people immediately respond. That's not the only way you can respond. In fact, you're not more saved because you responded to an altar call or an invitation to the church than if at your house or at a coffee shop or at a restaurant or in a park in a conversation with somebody, you came to the same conclusion. There's no, like, if you really want to be saved, you have to do this because that doesn't really count. No, salvation doesn't depend on anything we do as a church. It depends on what Jesus did on the cross and by his resurrection. And when people respond to that, we, we just want to give that opportunity. Here's another thing that I've found, practically speaking. Often, because we're in this room and we focused for an hour through music and through preaching and through God's word, that, that little nudge of the gospel, that little nudge of the Holy Spirit calling to somebody is pretty strong. And when we leave this room, it is amazing 
how quickly we forget what happened. Because life is here. We gotta, anybody gonna eat lunch today? Do you know what you're eating for lunch? No? So you'll think about it when you leave here. Like, I'm kind of hungry. He, he preached a little longer than normal. Should we go get a bite to eat? Yeah, I think that'd be good. Where do you want to go? All good questions. Not about Jesus. So we give an invitation to capitalize on that immediate response that sometimes happens. It's not the only way. It's not the only and le- only legitimate way. It's just one way it happens. So if you ever wonder when you come to church, why at the end do we always sing that last song? And the preacher stands at the front. And sometimes people come forward and sometimes they don't. It's because we believe we should give you an opportunity. Isaiah chapter 55, I believe, says, well, I'll just read it to you because I marked it. Verse 11, you may have heard this. So, actually I'll start at verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So another reason you might say we give that invitation is because we believe when we preach the word of God, the word of God is active and powerful and pierces at times. God says when it goes out, it doesn't return void. And maybe this is the moment where it makes that return. And we don't want you to miss that opportunity to respond to God. So we offer an invitation. Again, not the only way to respond to God, not the only way to be saved. There is one way to be saved. That's in the name of Jesus. I think we've covered that, right? But the proper way to access that salvation isn't only at an altar call. In fact, don't let anybody tell you that because you went forward into church and prayed a particular prayer, you're saved. Because that doesn't do it. Right? That's not what saves you. Saves you is faith in Christ Jesus, not ritual action in a religious setting or ritual words said in a religious setting. Prayer is important. You can call out whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a reference to prayer, but it's not like an incantation. You got to say these words and that makes it right. No, you just have to call upon him. You have to recognize I am a sinner. I, we, we, we all admitted that earlier. How many of you have sinned this week? I raised my hand. You said you did too. Okay, we're all on the same page there. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe He, by His life and death and resurrection, demonstrated that He was sent of God, the Messiah promised in Scripture, and it is only in His name that I can be saved. And so I want to place my faith in Him. I want to repent of my sin, turn from my sin, and receive the forgiveness and salvation that he offers, acknowledging him for who he really is, King of kings and Lord of lords, and Lord of my life. Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we have an invitation? Seems pointless to talk about it all this time and not do it, right? So if our worship team will make their way on up and uh, get ready, we're going to give you a chance to respond if in this moment over the course of this service for whatever reason god seems to be nudging your heart calling you to himself that you recognize yeah you know what 
I, I am a sinner. I have done things I shouldn't have done. And I need a Savior. And Jesus died and rose again. I want to place my faith in Him. This is the opportunity you have to respond to that. One way you can is by stepping out and by coming forward. That's why I'm at the front, to talk with or pray with somebody in this moment who wants to make that decision. Maybe there's other things on your mind. Maybe just the week has been hard. Things have happened and you're, you're just kind of weighted down and you feel like maybe there would be something in these moments that you could offer to God. And maybe the place that seems like a good place to do that is to come and kneel at the front of a church. Well, we offer that opportunity as well. Again, not because there's something about this as a ritual that's important, but because we believe that Jesus invites us to follow him. And this is one step in that direction. So I'm going to invite you to stand. The song we're going to sing is We Believe. We're going to proclaim those kind of facts of the, the things that Peter and John said they had seen and heard together as a church body. And if you desire to respond in any way, this is your chance. I'll be at the front. The altar is open.